Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host today, Bernice Heilbrunn. I'm lecturer in Jewish Studies at the University of Houston. I have on the line from Australia to speak with us about her new book, Leah Garrett. Leah Garrett is the Lottie Smorgan Professor of Contemporary Jewish Life and Culture at Manette. Hi, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host today, Bernice Heilbrunn. I'm lecturer in Jewish Studies at the University of Houston. I have on the line from Australia to speak with us about her new book, Leah Garrett. Leah Garrett is the Lottie Smorgan Professor of Contemporary Jewish Life and Culture at Monash University in Australia. I know from my experience with Monash University professors in Jewish Studies, they have quite an exceptional faculty there. Leah Garrett's book, Young Lions, How Jewish Authors Reinvented the American War Novel tells the story of best-selling, widely read novels that transformed the popular image of the Jew and transformed it more than once as novels themselves took different perspectives on World War II and on America's fighting forces. You don't need to have read the novels yourself, I haven't, to appreciate Leah Garrett's account of famous authors such as Norman Mailer, Herman Wouk, Leon Uris, and Joseph Heller, for example, and their best-selling novels. So let's turn to Leah Garrett to tell us about her book. Let me welcome now Leah Garrett to New Books. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to talk about my new book. Great. Well, we're excited to hear. So let me um, ask you the traditional opening questions that we have in New Books, which is, could you please tell us a little about yourself and how you came to write the book? Sure. I was born and bred in New York. And when I was growing up, all of my uh, male relatives, my grandfather, my great uncle, talked about World War II and their service in World War II. And I became quite interested and I would say almost obsessed with this idea about the impact of World War II on American Jews and what that meant. So I decided to start researching these books that were commonly known, well-read, And I went into different archives. And what I started to realize as I did my work was that not only did World War II have a profound impact on Jewish Americans, but World War II novels by Jewish Americans had a profound impact on America at large. And the thing that really got me going was I decided what I would do was peruse the New York Times bestseller lists after World War II started in 1945. And when I looked at the list for 1948, I was absolutely astounded that there were five best-selling war novels, either by or about Jewish soldiers, that dominated the bestsellers list. So I realized that for some reason, the way that Jewish Americans were writing about World War II was having a very big impact on the culture at large because these books were just being read and read and read and were highly popular. So that led me to to write this book to chart out 
the ways that Jewish American best, and I only focused on best-selling novels, wrote about America, wrote about the Holocaust, wrote about World War II, and to consider why they were so vastly popular and what were they saying about the culture of Jews and the culture of America that had such a big impact on mainstream readers. Very interesting. So you had a rich treasure trove of cultural artifacts, in a sense. Yes. Um, so let me, let me ask you, um, you write, uh, and I'm quoting from your book then, World War II military service had a profound effect on American Jewish life. The war changed everything. That's quite a sweeping statement. Um, could you talk about that? Yeah. So what the way I saw it was twofold. First was people who served themselves and what that meant. Because when Jews went into World War II, and, and I was surprised to find that actually Jews in America served at higher rates than other populations, when they came back from World War II, it was really the war that, that compelled and impelled American Jews generally to move into the middle classes, because the GI Bill allowed them to get a college education. So in this generational shift that happened after World War II, it was the returning veterans who really moved American Jews from a primarily um, working class population into a middle class population. And a lot of that had to do with finding themselves for the first time, Jewish Americans, living and working with non-Jews outside of their ethnic enclaves and becoming a very well-respected part of what broader America was. So it was a real force of acculturation and even more so a force of economic um, movement from, from working class to middle class that happened because of the war. Mm-hmm. The other way that the war had such a massive impact on American Jews was that it enabled American Jews to transform broad mainstream ideas about what American Jews were, because these men and women fought bravely alongside a lot of populations of Americans who had never had any contact with American Jews before. And what I argue is that it was really seen as the moment in which American Jews sort of transformed from these ethnic folks into mainstream Americans through service. Mm-hmm. So it was an impact during the war, but even more so, I would argue, impact after the war, as this this service enabled or propelled Jews into a different location, moved them into the suburbs, moved them into college educations, moved them into the middle class, and acculturate them into mainstream America as well. So it really transformed American Jewish life. And from what you just shared with us, it sounds as though it uh, knocked down stereotypes that people had had of Jews because of the personal experience people had serving together in um, the armed forces alongside Jews. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So Leonard Dienerstein wrote this really um, central book called Antisemitism in America. And what he charts is that there was – Deep, deep anti-Semitism in America, as we know, during the 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. um, and with the rise of the war. But suddenly after 1945, anti-Semitism basically disappears in America. It's no longer acceptable to be anti-Semitic. In large measure, that's due to the fact that anti-Semitism is now put in the place of the Germans and Hitler and these enemies we don't want anything to do with. 
But I also think that anti-Semitism really decreased as this whole range of American men served with Jews and didn't see them as these alien beings anymore. They saw them as members of their platoon, etc. That's not to say that there wasn't profound and deep anti-Semitism in the military, which there was, but um, but it, it was it was like I said, a real culture acculturation process that as some scholars have argued really transformed American Jews from being considered ethnics to whites, to Caucasians, to, to people that we, one would socialize with, etc. So it was this sort of dual way that it impacted on the perception of Jews in America. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. <clears throat> I mean, almost like a social experiment uh, that occurred in real time. To, right. Right. To, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So um, let me ask you a question. You explore books that were bestsellers, very popular books, widely read and discussed, many ultimately made into movies. Uh, and the authors and their books were incredibly diverse, uh, with some being by um, an intellectual iconoclast like Norman Mailer, who wanted very little to do with Judaism. I, th- I think you right. mentioned in your book that he actually uh, refused to have his children uh, raised as Jews. Right. Um, and um, on the other hand, you have somebody like Herman Wouk, a very conservative individual and an Orthodox Jew. Um, what do you attribute such disparate authors' works um, all being bestsellers? That's a really interesting question. So what I discovered when I wrote this book was what I wanted to do was chart out not just the books, but the reception of the books in the 40s, in the 50s, and the 1960s. So when I dealt with the books of 1948, what I discovered that all the best-selling writers were actually very liberal, leftist, anti-McCarthyist folks who saw a, a really important part of their platform to, to discuss World War II as the moment at which um, uh, they wouldn't use these terms, but diversity became important, that the platoon was this ideal brotherhood of men who were united and so on. And so a lot of their books were really focused on bringing this liberal ethos back to mainstream America. So those books were immensely popular in the 40s, and I think in large measure because they were doing a counter-narrative to the more conservative forces that were, were starting to crop up with the HUAC hearings, etc., And they spoke about sort of the best of America, this idea of diversity and uh, welcoming of brothers and transformation. When we get to the 1950s, though, with Herman Wouk, who, as you said, was not only very Jewishly conservative, but incredibly politically conservative, his book and Leon Erse's book, take a completely different platform and they talk about world war two as the moment at which America saved the Jews of Europe was united and that American Jews needed to really stop being rebels, stop being liberals and um, appropriate and like and transform into much more conservative members of society. And what I write about in the book with, which I found really interesting was that, when Herman Wouk's book came out, um, it was competing in the bestsellers list with Catcher in the Rye, and they were offering very different pictures. And what Herman Wouk was offering was the idea that we should conform and follow what our leaders say, that we shouldn't rebel. And this was actually so popular that his book started being taught in all of the American high schools across the country because of this conservative ethos. Uh-huh. So my feeling is that the books of the 50s appealed to a certain readership 
who wanted to feel really secure about what America was doing in the Cold War, that it was good to follow the leaders, that our military should be trusted, and so on. And then when we get to the 60s, Joseph Heller comes along, and he changes gears completely, and he starts returning to the whole liberal rebel idea. And that was also very popular in mainstream America at that point, as we're starting to get the beatniks rising, and so on and so forth. So the books... Somehow, I don't know if they tapped into mainstream ideas or led the mainstream ideas, but they really spoke to what Americans were concerned with. And they used the platform of World War II as the means with which to generate these ideas that were really compelling to people. And they were very different ideas in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And the novel sort of either, as I said, either charted or led it. I'm not quite sure which, but they they really tapped into cultural moments and. The war then became the means, as I argue, through which Americans were taught to understand what mattered about America, not just about Europe, but about about America. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I I remember in your book, you very um, persuasively uh, tell the story of, uh, in, in a sense, matching up these differences in the books with the eras in which they were written and which they they apparently reflect. Yeah, that was a really, because I consider myself much more of a literary historian than, I guess, a literary scholar. I use books and texts to chart history. So my really, the the real big question I had was how did these books speak to the times? How did they reflect on the times? What were the larger things happening in America at that point, which were written about in the books? So the books really, strangely enough, are not about world, my, my book is really not about World War II. It's really about how America transformed after World War II mm-hmm. and how the books chart this. Mm-hmm. Right. And as you're, and I think as you're sharing with us now, too, the, uh, the combination that you use of literature and history, uh, which, uh, you know, I'm sure must a challenge of a publisher when uh, he or she thinks of what silo this goes into, if it's literature, right. if it's history. <laughs> but it's, it's so refreshing to have something that's really, that doesn't, um, recognize borders between the disciplines, right, and combines them. Oh, thank you. And you know what? That came out of my training because I did a PhD in Jewish studies at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And the reason I did it there was I was really – I was really taken with the idea that a lot of scholars in Jewish studies particularly don't agree to the borders between history and literature. And in the large – very large measure – Scholars of Jewish literature do literary history. And that's because, as we all know, the cliche is that the Jews are the people of the book, but the reality is that the Jews were the people of the book. And when they didn't have political lands of their own and they didn't have government structures, the books were really the place where Jewish history was charted. So I was I was trained to look at Jewish books that way, and I, and I try and carry forth that in my work which is to see Jewish books as the locations of Jewish history Mm -hmm. and to read them that way more than anything. Oh, very interesting. Uh, Let me ask you a question, Um, and I'll try to phrase this. I hope I'm saying it correctly, but Jews were only a little more than 3% of the population, and yet it's from this marginal small group that we get the central uh, telling of the story of the war. How how did that come about? Do Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, that is the the question that blew my mind the most was how this tiny minority in the United States were basically writing all of the best-selling World War II 
books. And even when we get to the few bestsellers by non-Jewish writers like Jones, who wrote The Thin Red Line and who wrote From Here to Eternity, as I write in my book, he absolutely matched and mimicked the tropes of the Jewish writers. So even the non-Jewish books took on all these sort of moments. Um, I've thought about that, and, and I'm not sure what the exact answer is. One thing I think is that um, somehow Jews were were uniquely positioned to talk about America as from the position of both an insider and an outsider. So what they could do in their books of World War II was do this larger uh, question, which I've been interested in, was how World War II and how the war impacts and discusses America generally. And I think often we see that with minority populations, the huge roles of American Jews in comedy. We talk about the huge role of African-Americans in comedy. The people who are both insiders to the society, but also, mm-hmm. also can stand back enough to really look at it mm-hmm. and crit- be critical of it. And, and um, again, with this idea that Jews were the people of the book, what we have with these Jewish writers is that when they went to war, more than any other population I could find in America, they saw war as a rite of passage that they would use in their novels and discuss as Jewish Americans. Other people went to war and they came back and their idea wasn't now I have to write the great American novel. For Jewish soldiers, for some reason, they went to war and saw this as really rich terrain on which to write about World War II. So I think part of why the books were so popular and so important is that it was Jews who were writing the World War II books. When I look through the bestsellers list, there weren't many other books being produced by non-Jews. So they were the ones who said, look, um, I come from a tradition where where my people write about our experiences in books. I'm going to do that. And then they also had the stance of both insiders and outsiders that they could do these sort of critical surveys that would be compelling to mainstream Americans as they were trying to get their head around World War II and also the post-war era as well. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. So a combination then of being a marginal group and being people of the book. Right. Right. So uh, that's that's perhaps a good segue then into um, turning to Norman Mailer, uh, because I found it I, I found his personal story that you share in your book very interesting um, in that he was a man who, uh, from what you wrote, went into the war knowing he wanted to write a novel about war. Right. Uh, do you want to talk about him, please? Yeah. So I, what I did is I decided, again, because I see myself as a historian as much as anything, I wanted to go into the archives of my main writers. So I went to all the different archives. I went into the Norman Mailer Archive, which is at the University of Texas at Austin. And I sat, and there were so many files, and I, I was so excited when I found this group of letters that he wrote to his first wife, V, and which the letters all said, save this for my novel. And I realized as I was reading them, wow, he's doing all his character sketches and he's trying to sort of form this idea in his head of what this novel will be. So much so that he told his wife that the main reason he actually volunteered to serve was he wanted to write the great American novel. But what I found very interesting about it was um, I found this letter that he wrote when he was there where his idea had been that he would go and he would go on the front lines and he would do direct combat again, because this would serve his idea to write the great novel. Well, he was working in sort of not in frontline combat, but in an office and doing different things in, in the Philippines, I think 
when he got an offer, look, you can go do frontline combat. And he wrote to a letter to his wife, B, saying it was this most important moment in his life because he decided not to do it. He was too scared to do it. So what he did instead was he was on the borders of everything. He was never in the middle of everything. But because he knew he was writing this novel, not only would he sort of hear the sound of war, but he would go around and interview his fellow um, soldiers who actually were in frontline combat and ask them and get stories and write it down. And that's how he shaped his novel. And I write this funny bit in my book that he did it to such a degree because he, he found himself with these types of men he had never been around in his life. Again, he was another kid from a Jewish ethnic enclave in New York, which was basically where, where all of the writers were from. Mm -hmm. Suddenly he's thrown into the war with, as he said, these very hard men because he was stuck in a troop with men from Texas, the hardest of the hard men. And he found them incredibly intriguing because these were the type of men he'd read about in great American novels by non-Jewish writers. Suddenly he's there with them. And so he gets out his... <laughs> his little notebook, and he decides to go around to the different soldiers and interview all of them about their sex lives because he thought, wow, they're, they're going to have these stories. And so I write this bit in the book that after the war, when his book was a huge hit, there was a picture of him in life. I think it was Time Magazine or Life. I can't remember which. And one of the people who was in service with him said, I saw this picture of Mailer and I thought, oh, my God, they've arrested him for rape. <laughs> he was always asking us about our sex lives. Um, but it was he really went in there to collect information and to, to tell the story. But as he said, at the moment at which he could become one of those frontline men, he, he couldn't do it. He backed off from it. So, so just back to your question about why these books were so popular, I think they were also so popular because it was Jewish men who really blurred ideas about what it meant to be masculine in America. Because um, before the war, Jewish men always had this stereotype of being very effeminate. So by writing books about Jewish soldiers, and I got this idea from a friend I talked to who wasn't Jewish, and he said his, his grandfather was obsessed with these Jewish war novels. And I said, why is that? And he said, because it was the Jewish soldier who was able to to show the fears that mainstream American men oh. felt about serving in, in war, because they were able to talk about how scared they were. They were able to talk about the intellectual ideas they had about it, because because non non Jewish men had to be these real tough guys, these Hemingway mm -hmm. heroes. But it was the Jewish soldiers in these books who could blur these ideas about masculinity and so a guy who served could read a Jewish war novel and have this author talk about how scared he was in a way that Hemingway would never have ventured into. Oh, how interesting. And also perhaps willing to hold on and pursue the ideas when they came back, when the yep. theory was other people who came back were supposed to just put this behind them. Yeah, and they absolutely refused to do that. They they would not do that. In the 50s, it was different because Wook and Urus um, – perpetuated the hard man idea, but the, the novels right after the war were really about the fears that the Jewish men felt. And I think for mainstream readers, that was really comforting because it was the Jew who was allowed to do this mm -hmm. because he was always sort of seen as slightly more feminine in a very negative way. And But they could explore these ideas of fear and loss of identity and stress and, and all that stuff that other writers were uh, less uh, willing to do. Mm -hmm. And there was no sense that the Jewish men were condemned for being um, so sensitive, if you will, 
to these feelings that other people uh, weren't um, well, were reluctant actually, to recognize? Actually, in the novels, what I talk about was um, was a reason actually that some of the novels were critiqued by Jew- by Jewish critics was during the course of the novels, the sensitive Jew always transforms into the hard guy by the end. Ah, so, so he yeah, does yeah. take that on. So basically for the first part of the novels, he will do that. But it, by the end, he be always in these books. He becomes a true American hero. You can trust him. He's not scared anymore. He'll go to the front lines. He'll save everyone. And that's why in almost all the novels, the Jewish hero dies. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jewish soldier dies because it's always at that moment in which he's proving to everyone that he's a real tough guy. Mm-hmm. In fact, and it's only Norman Mailer, actually, of all of them. It's surprising. It was him who did it who really questioned that idea in his image and showed that this was really dangerous. He took one of his two Jewish characters who everyone is being anti-Semitic towards, who they're belittling for being soft and gentle and scared. And he decides to take a suicidal leap across a crevice to prove himself to the other soldiers that he's really tough. And he dies. Mm -hmm. And Miller definitely presents that as highly problematic where the other writers generally show it as this great moment of transformation when the sort of marginal Jew becomes the true American hero. So they definitely played into those stereotypes, but at least in the first part of the books, they show the fear that these Mm -hmm. men feel. Right. And uh, thank you for reminding me, because I know you share that trajectory in your book of going from the, the questioning and the fearful to the, the hardened and uh, brave. Right. But then we get to Heller and it goes back against to the questioning and the fearful with Yossarian. Yes. So we'll get to that in a minute. Let me ask you uh, about another question about Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead account of the Pacific War. Um, his book was said to depict the sewer that war really was. Um, right. And that through the platoon, you see America is really no idealized melting pot. Do you want to talk about that? Right. Yes. Yeah. So what he and I was really found this so interesting when I read Norman Mailer, basically, literally from like the first few pages, there's a course of anti-Semitism in the book and racism. It's constant in the book. So much anti-Semitism, so much racism. So the so the, the the mire and the filth he's showing is not only the mire of war, but the mire of America, who's treating its minorities so poorly. And I found it very intriguing that critics never talked about it. They never talked about the anti-Semitism he talked about or the racism. And um, and so what I what I think that he was trying to show clearly was that. Yes, we may project our rage and anger on the enemy who are doing these terrible things, but we also need to look back at ourselves at home and see what we're doing here, what we're doing to our minority members. Because what he keeps showing in the book, he shows it with the Latino members, he shows it with the Jews, is that these men have so much more of a burden on them when they go to war of proving themselves to be heroic because because everyone looks down on them and is racist towards them. So the mire that he's showing is not only, which I found very interesting because critics didn't talk about this, but it wasn't only the mire of service and the mud and the dirt and death and hell and all that stuff that he was writing about, which went very much against Hemingway's much more um, pretty versions of war, but also the mire of American hatred and racism. And for Mailer, it was particularly interesting to me because Mailer always asserted in his life that he never felt, 
he didn't deal with anti-Semitism in the war. And when I went back and I read his letters, I found these letters where he was talking about the anti-Semitism he directly faced in service and how regular and endemic it was. So um, I think what he did when, when he wrote it was he's trying to shed a light on these things that he distanced himself from a bit later as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, were, was he using Jewish elements to convey a general message about uh, American society? Was that what the... Yeah, I think was? that's what he was doing. I think I'm not... I'm not sure he was. Only, I would. I would definitely say he was not only concerned with anti-Semitism. He was equally concerned with racism. He wrote this letter um, about when he got to the base camp. Um, I think it was in New Jersey, somewhere up in the Northeast. He wrote a letter to B that he was absolutely shocked to see the treatment of African Americans, and that African American soldiers suddenly had to deal with Jim Crow in the Northeast of America, a place they're not supposed to be dealing with Jim Crow, because the troops then were completely segregated, and blacks always got the worst work. They were put in the worst beds, et cetera, et cetera. So he wrote about that to be about how shocking that was for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that weaves its way into the book, because his book is really as much about Americans needing to distance themselves from racism and anti-Semitism as it is about the war. Mm-hmm. It's about what America, the bad of America that needs to be transformed after the war. Mm-hmm. So the message is really much broader than any focus much broader. on. Yeah. yeah that's the so Jews were one, one part of the story. Blacks were equally centered on his eyes as were Latinos. He writes a lot about the hatred towards uh, Mexican Americans. Oh, well. interesting. At that time already. Yeah, and also, by the way, all the writers also wrote really um, forcefully about treatment of um, gay Americans as well. So it was gay Americans, gay men, Mexicans, and and Jews, but I think these were also larger messages about African Americans as well. Interesting. So these issues have been um, in in the forefront for some time. Right. Right. And I, I thought it was so interesting um, the way he used his letters home to be as his way of taking notes and keeping them. Right. For this I know. Novel. And it was brilliant. And what was so great about reading the letters is I could trace out all the characters and chart <laughs> out the way he changed them. He mm-hmm. changed them. Like I, I found it very interesting in the book. He made the Mexican American character, this very sensitive guy who's aware that he has to be <clears throat> really tough because of the racism but in the book, he has him, him um, he has him have this sensitivity to him. Whereas in the letters home to B, he writes about the Mexican, this character is based on as this really tough guy who's not sensitive at all. And so he was really transforming the characters he came into contact with to present larger pictures about America in the book. And I can chart, and I charted them all out with the letters out because, it, and the letters would say, save this B or this is for the novel or whatever it was. So it was, it was absolutely fascinating to see the relationship between the two. Uh, no burn these B. <laughs> yeah. Don't burn. These. Yeah, exactly. Don't burn these. And it's so funny that this guy went in knowing he would write the great American novel and he wrote the great American novel. He wrote the most important war novel in America of the last 200 years. Like he, he knew he was going to do it, and he did it. Uh-huh. It happened. That's pretty amazing. Right? Yeah, pretty yes. amazing. Yep. <laughs> so I um, I could go on and uh, talk with you uh, forever, I think, about Norman Mailer and also about Ira Wolfert's and his uh, book also of 1948, Act of Love, which focused on the Pacific Theater. But 
Um, I think we'll um, move on to 1952 and uh, talk about Herman Wuch's Cain Mutiny and Leon Uris's Battle Cry um, right. and, and the New Conservatism. Um, so do you want to contrast? You've, you've already suggested for us some of the uh, comparisons between Wuch and his bestseller right. um, and Norman Mailer. Uh, do you want to say anything more on, on that? Yeah. Yes, so the thing I haven't talked about that I'll just briefly talk about is that the other really important thing that the novels of 1948 did, which no one had, I I sort of discovered this in writing this, everyone thought that people started writing about the Holocaust, Jews started writing about the Holocaust much later than they did. But in the novels of 1948 set in Europe, they all have very, very explicit renditions of the death camps and of the Holocaust in, in the most explicit way possible, because clearly they were trying to get the information of the Holocaust out to mainstream Americans using their war novels as a medium to do that. And they were doing that much earlier than we generally recognize American Jews were doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were trying to get the information out. Now, when we get to Herman Wouch in 1952, the information of the Holocaust is out. And he doesn't see that as his mandate. What he sees as his mandate is to use his war novel to thank America for saving the Jews of Europe. And by the way, I should say that um, I wrote to Herman Wuch as I was writing this book, and I thought I would never hear from him. He wrote back to me in like a week, and I got I have a letter. Oh. I framed it and put it up in my oh. office that he wrote back to me asking him about this stuff. And he was and is considered one of the most. He still he still does this when people write to me. Writes right back. One of the most generous humans in the world. So he did that for my book, and it was very kind of him. But. So when he deals with the Holocaust in the book and World War II, what he is doing is showing that American Jews specifically and Americans generally should feel nothing but profound gratitude to the military for what they did for saving the Jews of Europe from the Holocaust, the remnants who they saved. So when he wrote The Cain Mutiny, his intention was very different. And also Herman Wuch um, Claims, and he wrote in a letter to me, he never experienced anti-Semitism the way that Mailer did. So anti-Semitism wasn't a concern in his book. What he wanted to do was show um, the military in this shining light. However, what's very strange when you read the Cain Mutiny is it doesn't seem to do that at all. In fact, the Cain Mutiny seems to be about a very, very um, smart group of men rebelling against an absolute lunatic who's running the ship and doing a mutiny. And it, and a lot of the criticism of the book said this is a very strange book because three quarters of the book is criticizing the leadership of the military. And then you get to the last quarter of the book with this court scene in which a Jewish lawyer comes in and he argues that we should not complain against anyone in the military because of what they did for the Jews so it's very interesting um, because it takes this complete turnaround. However, the way the book was read was as this absolute um, love of the military and an indictment of rebellion. And the way you see that in the book is he makes one of the most uh, negative characters, uh, Norman Mailer. He bases, bases one of his characters on Norman Mailer. And it's this character exactly like Norman Mailer. Who is, out, who is serving in war, so he will write the great American war novel. He's a liberal, he's a liberal rebel. It's exactly Norman Miller. He's not a Jewish character in the book, but it's Norman Miller. 
And so the book focuses on showing that these rebellious artistic types like Norman Mailer are utterly untrustworthy. They're, they're overthrowing the government. We need to, you know, get rid of them and have a much more conservative ethos. So it, it was really also this internal indictment of the novels of 1948 for shining a light on racism, anti-Semitism, all of these negatives of, of America and doing a turnaround and saying, no, 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 America is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing was true with Leon Uris. Leon Uris, I loved going into his archive because it's funny, Norman Miller wanted to always wanted to be a tough guy. He wanted to be like Hemingway. He wanted to be Card. But, you know, like I said, he backed away when he had the chance to go <laughs> to combat. Uh-huh. Leon Uris jumped in at full force. And I read mm-hmm. his letters home and he was like, he was serving in Guadalcanal and he said, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. It's so much fun. He, he, in fact, he liked it so much. This is really gruesome. He sent a Japanese flag home to his father that was covered with blood. And his father then went to the Yiddish newspaper, Der Freiheit, in New York and showed them the Japanese flag. And I found this picture of his father standing in the Yiddish newspaper. And it says something like, father of heroic Jewish soldier. So that's who Leonurus was. So when he wrote his book, he felt, and in fact, he said the greatest thing in his life was serving with the Marines. And very few Jews served with the Marines. Mm -hmm. And he loved every minute of it. So his book, Battle Cry, was like the most staunch, pro-military, this is the greatest thing, all these men are fantastic. And when he writes about Jewish soldiers in his book, he has two Jewish soldiers one of them is a Captain Max Shapiro who leads all the men to battle and he's hard. He was completely a throwback to Hemingway. Hard, tough guy, you know, and, and you have to follow him. And then he has this other Jewish soldier who shows up and he's, he's, he's the, the negative stereotype of the Jew. He's scared and he's nervous. And during this, the, the, the novel, he transforms into this tough guy who basically um, suicides himself to save the rest of the men in the platoon. So both Leon Uris and... And um, and Herman Wouk were absolutely reflecting the rise of conservatism and McCarthyism and the rejection, utter rejection of liberal ideals, mm-hmm. particularly of the stuff of Norman Mailer. So much so that Herman Wouk would create a Mailer character to make fun of, mm-hmm. to show we as Jews need to reject this. We need to embrace the mainstream, the conservative. Mm-hmm. It's so absolutely. interesting that. Yeah, I'm reflecting sorry. absolutely what's going on in the times as well. Mm-hmm. And the incredible diversity among the Jewish writers who were telling the story of their own war experience or of yeah. the war experience of others. Yeah, um, exactly. And tapping in. I mean, again, it's that question, were they so popular because that's what people were interested in the time? Or were they showing people stuff that they would become interested in? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they tapped absolutely into the moment. And they were such diff- and they were using the idea of war so radically differently for both sets <coughs> that they completely reflected on trends in American culture at the time. Mm-hmm. So that people, uh, the writers Herman Wouk and Leon Uris, would not have perhaps been the popularly received writers in the 1940s, but they were writing at a time when it was their ethos that suited what Americans wanted to read. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the war, and war is always a great platform to, to sort of propagandize and present ideas about your country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the writers of 1948, what they're showing is that the 
ideals of America are, aren't always so great. There's anti-Semitism, there's racism. We need to fix this stuff after the war so we're not like the Germans and hateful. But by the 50s, the trend is completely different. It's a economic boom, it's suburbanization, it's McCarthyism, it's conservatism. And that's what Americans were interested in reading. However, as I argue, really, Miller, uh, sorry, Luke is competing, like I said, he's competing with Salinger on the bestseller list. And Salinger still has the story of the rebel. So they're, they're appealing to very different readerships. And as the as I see it, there were sort of two very different sets of readerships in the 50s. There were the, still those who wanted rebellion and that ethos, which we'll see in the rise of the 50s of James Dean and Elvis, all that stuff. And then there's the others who want this idea that, you know, America's great. We don't need to question it. We can feel secure in what we're doing with the Cold War. And mm -hmm. that's what the novels do. But as I said, though, the Cain mutiny doesn't really do that because it really does question the leadership and talks about mutiny. But in the end, it battens down, battens down the hatches and says, no, 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 military is great, follow the leaders, mm -hmm. etc. Interesting. And I think you also point out in your book, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, that at, in the 50s we were in Korea. And so that was an yes. additional reason that uh, they, they were these books were popular because we were once again sending soldiers to war. And, yes. Right? And we wanted yes. to think of them as uh, brave and good people, which is how that's they a, were presented in these books. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I actually found, I can't even remember how I found it, but I found the best-selling bestseller list of books in Korean libraries for service, American servicemen. And right at the top were the Jewish war novels right there at the top. So they were also saying things that the American military wanted to hear at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it makes complete sense to me that they did not want to, they did not want to challenge the idea of the brave heroic servicemen when men were going off to war as well. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So we're going to uh, leap a decade again uh, and now move to 1961 and Joseph Heller's Catch-22, um, uh, which you portray as, once again, a completely different milieu. So we have three different decades um, from what I understand in your book, right? The 40s, the 50s, right. and the 60s. So uh, why don't you tell us a little about Joseph Heller's Catch-22 and the new liberalism. I mean, I thought it was particularly interesting that here was a writer without an obvious Jewish hero in his book at all. And yet you right. found that indeed he does write as a Jew. Um, so do you want to tell, uh, tell us about Heller and his place in the American Jewish war literature? Yeah, I would love to. And, and with Heller also, I went into the archives and I found all this really interesting stuff that helped me sort of prove my point about the Jewish aspects. So Heller, as actually with all of our writers, well, maybe not Hertman Wood, but the, the rest of the writers, first and foremost, wanted to be seen as an American writer, not a Jewish American writer. Mm -hmm. So that was his story yeah. there. So he went and he wrote, <clears throat> he served uh, as an airman out of Italy doing bombing campaigns. And he wrote this phenomenally autobiographical novel. I mean, there's been these scholars who've charted out the and compared the novel with who her, what Herman and Joseph Heller did. There's a direct comparison between the two. So it was very, very autobiographical. But then he does this crazy thing, which is he he doesn't make the, the airman a Jew. He instead makes him an uh, Assyrian Armenian. And so <clears throat> my question was, well, why is he doing this? Is this Jewish? Should I read it this way? And so what I argue is that 
by the 1960s, Jewish Americans were winning in incredibly disproportionate numbers all of the major book awards. Mm-hmm. There was this point in which Jewish Jews were called the Jewish Mafia in mainstream <laughs> America because Bellow was winning everything. Oh. Um, Roth, right. They were so mainstream by 1961, Jewish Americans, in mm-hmm. particular in literature, that as Joseph Heller said, he had to reach way further afield than a Jew to create the rebel, the rebel character, right? Yes. So he wanted the, the rebel, but the Jew is no longer the rebel in 1961, particularly in literature. He's very mainstream. So he cast way further afield, and he goes with this thing called the Assyrian armenian man named Yossarian. Mm-hmm. However, as I chart in the book, everything about Yossarian is Jewish. He has Yiddish cadences and how he talks and a lot of other scholars have pointed to this. Mm -hmm. His concerns are completely New York Jewish liberal concerns. You know, he, he talks as a Jewish New Yorker. He has liberal ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So on the one hand, what he's doing is he's presenting this very liberal, again, this idea of embracing of diversity rebelling as being an important, a very important mandate, all the stuff that Mailer was into. But he's doing it with this character who is a Jew, but is totally cloaked as a mainstream person. And what I did when I read the book is I, <clears throat> there was this chapter in this book that nobody's understood where, um, nobody's known what to do with it, where Yossarian walks through Rome and it's near the end of the book. And where Rome and all the rest of the novel has been the place where the airmen go. And it's like where they have sex with prostitutes, where they have fun, where they don't have to think about the war, where it's really like the last days of the Roman empire. Suddenly he's walking through Rome and it's transformed into this bloody, scary place where he walks over body parts, where he sees kids being beaten, where he sees a woman being raped and thrown out a window. And I, as I read it, I realized, oh, my God, symbolically, Rome has transformed into this Jewish ghetto. And if you read it, read it that way, suddenly you see that in this book where Heller's trying desperately not to talk about Jews and desperately not to talk about the Holocaust, the Holocaust is, in fact, everywhere. And Yossarian walks through Rome. And after he walks to Rome, he has this sort of ethical moment. And when I went into the archive, I found um, Heller's annotated notes to a copy of the book in which he says, that's when Yosarin wakes up and becomes a much more ethical person and has to act more ethically. Because what he had, what Heller had done until that moment in the book, uh, and it was a thing at which critics got, Jewish critics got very angry with him with Catch-22, was he would not say anything about the Holocaust. And he tried to make the war novel a war novel about all wars, not specifically about the German war. And and in large measure, that why, why it was embraced during the Vietnam War, because it seemed like to be a book about how evil war is, and we need to, to not embrace the, the military, and we have to challenge it. And that's why it became so important to the Vietnamese War. But embedded in it is a very Jewish critique of the Holocaust. And and he uses, as I argue, Yossarian to do this because he goes from this figure who's nothing but a rebel against the military. He just wants to get home. He doesn't care about it. Then he has this symbolic walk through Rome, which has all the aspects of the Holocaust and body parts and death and darkness. And then he becomes a much more ethical figure in the end. So on the one hand, it reads like this very liberal, rebellious, 
ang- angry young man book. You could put it with Kerouac, you know, Kerouac, etc. New Beats. But on the other hand, there's also, as some Jewish critics notice, there's really the shadow of the Holocaust all over it as well. And so I argue that where he's trying to make Yozarian into the everyman rebel, the rebellious young man, but as you go through Yozarian's journey with him, you start to realize, wait a second, at the same time that he's that, he's also a Jewish airman who's been profoundly impacted by the Holocaust and what he's done as well. So it takes on both sides. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the reason it was so popular was, but was, though, not the Jewish aspect at all, but because of the rebellious and war is bad. And it, would, and it really spoke to a generation of people who were against the Vietnam War mm-hmm. because it took on these large apocalyptic, apolitical tones that people could sort of plug in any war into this book. That's really fascinating. Let me pick up on your comments on the Holocaust for a moment. Uh, I, I found it particularly intriguing that the writers who you um, share share with your readers uh, did see World War II and the Allied war, Europe, war efforts in Europe, at least, as a, an effort to save Jewish life. Right. Um, and I was struck by that because it seems as though today we often look back on the Allied efforts and say that the Allies ignored Jewish concerns. Uh, right. Whether, right. And so w- I was wondering where you came out on that. Right. OK, so. Um, what I had always been taught about World War Two and Jewish Holocaust literature was that these were two very separate fields that. There was the military campaigns in Europe, and then there were the then the Holocaust was occurring, and we need to look at them as two different locations. Jewish American writers absolutely and utterly refused that bifurcation, and as I argued, these books were such huge bestsellers. I would argue mainstream Americans actually refused that as well. And what the authors did instead was were, was write that <clears throat> the Holocaust. And the military campaigns were occurring on the same landscape, and they're not separate. They are the same thing. And so what these authors did then was use Jewish soldiers as the representatives of both, because what was the Jewish American soldier? Well, he was the American soldier, so now we cover the military, and he was the Jew, so now we cover the Nazis and the Holocaust. And he was the one who could embody both of these stories at the same time. And so, for instance, in The Young Lions, um, this really huge bestseller that came out in 1948 and was made into a movie, the Jewish soldier contains both of these as- – the Jewish American soldier contains both of these soldier- these aspects to such a degree that the novel ends with him being shot by a Nazi – and sort of saying Heil Hitler at the same time. So he's being shot because he's a Jew by a Nazi, but he's also being shot because he's a member of the American military. And that happens over and over again in these novels. So there's this, of course, this broader notion, which is true that America could have done more. But what these authors argue is that at the same time that America could have and should have done more, we can't let the world off the hook by saying the Holocaust and the war were different things. We need to see them as happening at the same time on the same landscape and not to clean up World War II by pushing the Holocaust off as its own separate event. What these authors kept doing and insisting 
forcefully was that whenever we think of World War II, we need to include the Holocaust in it, not segment it out and make it the concern of Jewish study scholars. Mm-hmm. Because the Holocaust and World War II are one and the same thing. Oh. And that's that's a really transformative and um, huge idea. And I think there are, there are novels really convinced Americans of this. They were such big bestsellers. Mm-hmm. So it's not two events. It's one event. We can't just say the Holocaust is the concern of the Jews. The Holocaust, in fact, was the concern of us as Americans at the mm-hmm. same time. That's so interesting. And it's so interesting to use these bestselling novels as a source material to yeah. assess right what the American position was at the time. You, you mentioned uh, the Hollywood uh, films a couple of times. So I, I wonder if you might address how uh, Hollywood changed the role of Jews that uh, the novelists that we've been talking about had created? Oh, wow. They just utterly, to use a term that I don't like to use much, they deracinated it completely. They got rid of the Jewish. Um, the great example is, of course, um, the the one uh, I was just mentioning where the Jewish soldier Noah Ackerman gets killed at the end of the, uh, of, of the Young Lions, the novel. And in the, in the novel itself, the fact that he's Jewish is hugely important and he faces all this anti-Semitism and he's killed for being a Jew. When they decided to make, this is typical of, of most of the movies, when they decided to make the movie, they decided that they would cast Marlon Brando as the Nazi. There's a huge, the character who kills the main Jewish characters is this Nazi character. Now in the novel itself, the Nazi is the most evil subhuman character in the book and a large measure what the Jewish writers were doing in their both in their European and their Pacific set novels was they were trying to turn on its head American propaganda ideas about the enemy. So in the Jewish war novels, they make the Japanese soldiers, intriguingly, members of a, fem, fem, a fellow minority like Jews. So they make the Japanese soldiers often very empathetic figures. Mm-hmm. And in the Jewish war novels, they make the Nazis always into subhuman demons. Now, America propaganda and American anti-Semitism was during the war instead saying that the Japanese were the subpar humans and that the Nazis and the European Germans were European brothers. That was a lot of the anti-Semitic stuff that was being said. Well, there, there are European brothers. Jewish war novels turned that on its head. When they went to make the movies, they flipped it back again. So they make Marlon, Marlon Brando decides that what he will turn, make the Nazi into again is a sympathetic European hero. And so, and they would make Noah Ackerman sort of a Jew, but he's not going to die at the end. In fact, he's going to go back to America and marry his Christian girlfriend. So all of the layers of anti-Semitism that these authors were um, writing about were taken out of the films. And I write about, um, I found it even problematic to this day when um, when I write about the Thin Red Line, which was not by a Jewish writer, but was by a non-Jewish writer, Jones, who was very empathetic to Jewish issues. When he wrote the Thin Red Line, uh, sorry, yeah, the Thin Red Line, he makes the most central character, this Jewish uh, captain, who's really um, sensitive and intelligent, and he's this considerate and beautiful character. He's sort of the ethical focus of the whole book of The Thin Red Line. Well, when it was cast and made to a movie like five years ago, 
it, he was can, transformed from a Jewish character into a Greek character. Hmm. So this, uh, this, this tradition absolutely continues to this, this day of kind of getting rid of this essential Jewishness of mm-hmm. these stories and it was only in the movie of Catch-22, that was the only movie in which they made uh, Yosari, <laughs> they cast Yosari as an app, they didn't say it was Jewish, as the most Jewish character actor of the day. So it was like the, the movie itself, I think it was Mike Nichols, decided, I'm going to put the Jewish back into this book that Heller refuses to admit it's there. So uh-huh. they kept flipping it around. That is really ironic. Yeah, it's absolutely mm-hmm. ironic right. that they did that. <laughs> So we've talked about uh, quite a number of books now and uh, books that presented, um, I'd say, a quite diverse uh, picture of the war. Um, So do you think the Jewish portrayal of World War II fighting was realistic or perhaps realistic in its diversity? How you mean the way it was in the books? Yes. Was it realistic? No, it was. That's what, what, again, I found so interesting. Um, Okay, so when the Jews wrote about World War II – the way that a Jew is a Jew in all of the World War II novels, every single one except for a bit Norman Miller does it a little bit differently, is he's a Jew entirely because he deals with anti-Semitism and hatred. And a lot of Jewish critics at the time really criticized this. They said, why is that only a Jew? Why isn't he a Jew because he goes to synagogue? Why isn't he a Jew because he keeps kosher? Why isn't he a Jew because he does Passover? Why is there no Judaism in any of these books? Why are these Jews only Jews because of anti-Semitism? Well, Deborah Dashmore wrote this great book about Jewish soldiers in World War II. Mm-hmm. And what she charts, she call, it's called G.I. Jew. And what she charts in her book, it's a book of oral histories and histor- histor- historical fact is that Jewish soldiers, in fact, in, in, in the reality when they served in World War II, actually really embraced their Judaism and they returned to their Judaism. When they went to Europe and they saw victims of the Holocaust, they suddenly found that they were speaking the Yiddish of their childhood. They went to Shul. They, they came back from the war much more Jewish for many of them than, than they had gone. In Jewish war novels, we don't see any of that. The Jew is a Jew because he faces hatred. So in my um, interpretation of it, what these authors are doing is not writing a true account of the war, but they're writing an account, like I said, of America and what they want to say to America about hatred, about anti-Semitism, etc. The only novel that was published about um, World War II service in which we get tons of Judaism was a book that was published with the Jewish Publication Society, which meant it was for Jewish readership called Boot Camp. I think it was called Boot Camp. That was written for Jewish readership. And in that book alone, do we have a Jewish character who goes to shul, who keeps kosher, deals with what it means to be a Jew as a member of the religious aspects of it. None of the other writers had any concern about that. Their concern was using the Jewish soldier to shed a light on certain aspects of post-war American culture. Very interesting. Um, Yeah. So it was a complete break, I think, with reality in some measure. Although I think that the anti-Semitism was real. But in Deborah Dash Moore's book, um, I think she charts a bit less anti-Semitism than the Jewish novelists were writing about. So they were really trying to put it to the forefront of one of their issues. Very interesting. So let me ask you, you've uh, used the term several times Jewish American and Jewish American literature. 
Um, what what does the term mean? I sometimes uh, don't quite understand the difference between American Jews and Jewish Americans. And I think you've been using Jewish Americans. Why? Okay, so um, I just use it because it comes out of my mouth quicker, but American <laughs> Jewish is fine, fine for me. It's really contested term in literary studies. And it used to be that um, literature of America was only considered Jewish American if it wrote explicitly about Jewish concerns. This is what people like Ruth Weiss and others argued it had to have Jewish concerns. What I argued, though, then was, well, then why do we consider Kafka a Jewish writer? He never wrote about Jewish concerns. Mm-hmm. He did a Jewish poetics. So what I've argued it throughout my books is that it need not have an explicit Jewish concern to be to be categorized as Jewish American or American Jewish. If it has a Jewish poetics, the way Yosarian does and Catch-22 does, it counts. And what I argue even more so is that after World War II, Jewish American writing from Arthur Miller, I mean, in the majority of it actually starts to go underground and it does a Jewish poetics like death of a salesman. Mm-hmm. Originally De- Arthur Miller wrote death is a salesman about an overtly Jewish family. He only admitted mm-hmm. that later in his year. And then he changed them to sort of the mainstream American family. <laughs> to me, how can we not include death of a salesman as a Jewish American work? Because everything about it is about the struggle of the, the Jewish immigrant family. Even if Arthur Miller decided that he had to sort of hide the Jewishness. Mm-hmm. So when I say Jewish American or American Jewish, what I'm looking for is a clear Jewish poetics, and and people would probably have a problem with this, but that's why I conclu- include Jones in my book, Thin Red Line in my book, because it's so much about the po- concerns of post-war Jewish America. So what I argue and others have argued is this doesn't even have to be literature by Jews as long as it deals with the concerns of what it means to Jew- be a Jewish American. That's really interesting, um, and I'd love to talk more about that, but uh, I, I think we've taken um, enough of your time. Let me ask you um, in conclusion, and thank you so much for all you've shared with us, but let me ask you um, the traditional closing question on new books, which is, what's your next project? Are you working on something else now? I am, and it's really exciting. So when I was writing this book, I started to read, go through all the mad magazines published in America in the 1950s, and I was looking at their satires of the war. And I didn't put it in the book, but what I found was they did these all these really compelling satires of the way that Jewish American war novels were turned into movies. And then I discovered, of course, that all the writers of Mad Magazine in the 1950s were Jews, mm-hmm. and nobody's written about this. So my new book is... I haven't decided if it's specifically about Mad Magazine in the 1950s or if it's going to be a broader book, which it, might, which it probably will be, about how Jews wrote about suburbia and post-war economy and et cetera in the 1950s. So what I'm doing is I'm carrying this book forward. Instead of just looking at World War II, I'm focusing it on the 1950s and the 1960s the rise of suburbanization, and what I'll probably do, do is look at a range of material magazines, bestsellers, books in Yiddish, because I want to return to Yiddish, so I work a lot with Yiddish, possibly stuff in Hebrew, um, American works that were published in the 50s and 60s to see what they say about suburbanization and what Jewish life was like after World War II, on which, weirdly enough, very little has been written. So that's what I'm going to do. But Mad Magazine is my big jumping off point because it was so fun. I just wrote this big article about the Jewish aspects of Mad Magazine, and I'm just really intrigued with what they did in the 1960s as well.
Wonderful. It does sound like fun. And when that's published, I hope you'll return to new books and we can talk about that book. I would love to do that. And thank you so much for letting me talk about this book. It's been so, it was so much fun to write and I love talking about it. So thank you for listening for this hour. Well, thank you to Leah Garrett and to all our listeners, please go out and get your copy of Young Lions, How Jewish Authors Reinvented the American War Novel and tune in soon for another interview. 